Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the raza. Yeah. This is for the raza. This is for the raza. Yeah. This is for the raza. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto here, back with another roundtable of Chicano Latino experts to talk about heroes, sheroes. Today's episode is being co-hosted by Alex Lozada and Francisco Lopez. One of the main topics that constantly comes up in discussions like the one we are having now is how much our community has a very little sense of history. We are very clear about the historical myths that founded the United States. These myths are taught to us from the moment we walk into school as babies, literally, and then are relentlessly pounded into our heads for the next 12 years. For many of us, our first contact with Chicano, Mexicano, Indigenous thought of any kind does not happen until we get to college. And therein lies the rub. Most of us never make it to college. We have our sheroes, heroes, martyrs, and minstrels and jokers. The epic figures that stand above all of us as beacons of resistance to Anglo oppression. And we fixate on them as we have been taught to do. The truth is every one of us has benefited from the love and mentorship of someone from our community, both in and out of our families. So let's talk about these people. Let's talk about the example they have set and how our forgotten ancestors have dragged that very notion of being Mexican, Puerto Rican, Colombian, Chicano into the present and the future. The more we name our sheroes, heroes, martyrs and minstrels, jokers, the more we can put to rest the idea we are disorganized and the movement is dead because clearly it is not. Before we get started, I want to remind all the participants to say their name in the first time they speak. So here we go. We're talking about uh, we're talking about heroes, sheroes, and heroes. Just to kind of kick it off, I think that one of the biggest problems that we have is that as a community, you know, we we really get into hero worship, right? And so we we take these individuals and we we put them on on a pedestal. And it's not that they're not doing good work or the things that they did were important. It just doesn't leave room for the other people that are coming after them, right? It's like, we're, it's like we're stuck in this moment of glory, right? So to speak, I don't know how glorious it was, but it's like we're stuck there. And then, you know, we see, or we don't see, or we don't talk about all of the other people who are doing uh, really good political work right now all across the country. Yeah, what you were mentioning earlier about the international aspect to it, I think, uh, I, I think that the idea of heroes and sheroes it sometimes can fall into certain ruts, whether it's nationalism or some kind of ideology or an ethnicity or, you know, I think initially when movements start, there's a big emphasis on, <laughs> on the heroes and sheroes being ethnically from there, uh, from, you know, from the, the, the movement or national, you know, there being some kind of national connection. And I think that those ruts can be counterproductive or, you know, movements not not a criticism specifically chicano movement or chicano chicano movement but you know movements can tend to adopt more mainstream heroes and sheroes as well which it can help and it can hurt you know i think when trying to come up with a mission you know come up with a an identity come up with 
I think, what the movement is really going to attach itself to and establish itself upon. So that's why, you know, for me, having different influences across, you know, the indigenous territories and regions around the world for me was very important and formulative for me, identifying with, quote unquote, Aztec and, and Maya peoples and, and the different nations, uh, the hundreds of nations that existed in Mexico and Guatemala and, and, and southern United States, but then also branching off into the indigenous Arab tribes and, and peoples and heroes and traditions, uh, and then finding a way to work the Judeo-Christian Muslim uh, traditions into uh, Aztec and Maya tradition, along with, you know, Buddhist and, and the other traditions that I had studied along the way. I mean, for me, it was very important to identify an indigenous tradition overall and the importance of, of, of people returning to that, whether you're from Europe or from Africa or from whatever continent you're from, and understanding that there's definitely a dynamic between colonization, indigenous peoples, and, you know, where we stand as a movement, Chicano-Chicana movement in the United States, you know, in that interplay. So... Yeah. I don't know that I think that's a, a kind of a difficult conversation to have but but maybe in some ways it's important too to like you said to branch out and look internationally who are who are natural allies what situations can we learn from and look at that experience things that have already happened and say well where kind of plot our course along a more of a historical uh, uh, continuum and see where we're at now where we're headed to I think that's very true. I think the more that we intellectually, you know, isolate ourselves here in the United States, I think the more that it really puts the movement or the people that are working towards liberation, whatever exactly that means to them, in sort of this provincial light, you know, that we're just kind of like these little hillbillies that are complaining because we don't have what everybody else has or, you know, that type of thing. You know, the reality is when we have legitimate grievances uh, about land and about sovereignty and, and all those things. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a difficult conversation, but uh, one, and one that it seems that maybe we've abandoned or that we don't really take as seriously as we did once. Well, for movements to be successful, just historically speaking, other people internationally have to identify with it. Mm. They have to see themselves in it. Yeah. And when we have such, a, such difficulty putting, you know, not only from a theoretical perspective or, or an intellectual perspective, but also just from a basic, you know, on a basic level, the divisions that exist among Chicanos and Chicanos, just in terms of defining the movement and defining who we are and, and what we're fighting for, that makes it that much more difficult, I think, to bring our plight and our struggle to an international level and for people to identify with it. So I've, I've found myself, you know, explaining to people from Bangladesh or Uzbekistan or people that I come across, uh, uh, Muslims from the Muslim world, you know, trying to explain to them, you know, what is a Chicano and what are our gripes and what's our struggle about. Oftentimes I find myself defaulting maybe to a detriment to the Palestinian struggle because a lot of Muslims can identify with that. I often find myself saying, well, you know, how the Palestinians are fighting against the occupation and South Africans fought against apartheid. Well, as Chicanos were, you know, I, I have to explain it in that perspective. And I think that's good. And, and I think that's a way that people can identify with the struggle. But you know, is it, is that all there is to it? You know, is, isn't there more to it, I think? And, and you don't want to make it too complex. That way it, it'll make it harder for people to identify with the struggle and, and, and support it. But what are the ways that people can internationally support the Chicano struggle? What, what are the ways that, 
you know, what are the important identifying characteristics that we, I think those are questions that we, we definitely talked about. There was dialogue and, and, but we never really as a group, as an entire group settled on those issues as much as Palestinians coalesced around their cause. And then the people joined in with them as much as, you know, the black and African-American civil rights movement in the fifties and sixties, how, how people were able to coalesce around that, the struggle in South Africa. I mean, nothing came easy, of course, but it just seemed like those were, even when Malcolm X was saying, this is only for black people, you know, and pushing uh, others away, people were still, whether they wanted it to happen or not, identifying with it. And I think that as a Chicano movement, Chicano movement, we're struggling with that. And I'm not sure what the, if there's any easy answers or solutions to that, but, you know, it is a question of, of heroes and sheroes and, and they're being, you know, naming them and putting them... I don't know about putting them on a pedestal, but giving them the platform and everybody kind of agreeing that these are, you know, our movement's leaders. That's important to have that agreement mm-hmm. among us, even if we differ, you know, about where the credit lies or whether those people have flaws or, you know, at some point there's got to be, maybe it's a bad word, but an apotheosis of our heroes and sheroes. It's actually a very good word. <laughs> <laughs> What do you got to let it happen? We've got to yeah. we've got to let that happen, and we've got to we've got to put the, we've all got to be a part of 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 not only creating new legends out of out of our heroes and sheroes, but you know letting them grow into bigger than life stories, yeah. and not constantly oh well that that person was you know in this part of the struggle, but they did this this and this, and that mm-hmm. person did this, but they kind of petered out after that, and that like we always are put, raising people up to drag them down. I think as a movement and you know, not allowing people to have their moment and then let that moment become bigger than life. That's so right. important, I think, for, for the development of a hero mythology. Yeah. Uh, and that's you what know, it is. It's, it's a mythology. Go ahead, Francisco. Yeah, well, you know, to me, you know, coming to it from an educator point of view, from a middle school teacher, you know, I would even say even identifying. One of the questions I always give <laughs> to my students, tell me five, tell me five Chicano heroes you have. And what are the names that come up? Who are these people, you know? And it's usually comedians, of course, George Lopez, Fluffy, and movie actors, things like that. So I think even expanding the basis of what a hero is or who our heroes are. And I'll be honest, those names, are, they're not, even here in California, there is limitation to the scope of where those names are found and how frequently those names are found. And I think in our last podcast, I brought one of those up. One of our stories in, in our curriculum is uh, Francisco Jimenez from uh, The Circuit. And that's one story out of a you know, whole year. And we only have one hero that uh, most of our students can truly identify with. And other than that, you're always looking for that to identify with somebody who's not a reflection, so to say, ethnically, culturally of you, right? You're always looking outside rather than looking within. And I think that's uh, one of the issues that I see, you know? And I think your point about how many of us may, uh, may not get to that point until we are in college, you know, where you can truly become more responsible for your own education. That's part of it, you know. So how do we get those out there, you know? Is, is it through comic books? Is, you know, and we hear it. I mean, Dora the Explorer, hey, cool. You know, go, Diego, go. Cool, you know. How do we get those at a younger age, you know? It's all about that seed. Yeah, it's, and Fernando, I was just going back to some of what you said. You, what you said was so much, like my brain was just trying to catch up and, and trying to conceptualize like all these things that you were saying as someone whose roots come from Colombia and looking at the struggles of indigenous communities in South America, right? It's like, how do we 
make that connection with all of these communities, especially with what's currently happening in Brazil, in Bolivia, in Chile, right, with what's happening with all these uprisings within our communities. Like, how do we, and open to anybody, how do we connect all of those, right? And also, oftentimes, as a woman, I see a lot of men hailed as our heroes, as people who are marching on and doing all these things as the organizers, as the front-facing people that you see within the media, whether it's on the news or on social media, right? But very often, it's the women in the background who are doing the heavy lifting of the day-to-day labor. Open to anybody on the on the call here, like what, how are some things that you're seeing doing one by women and then about joining these indigenous communities across like South America, Central America, Mexico, North America, like how, how do we see that working? So I totally agree with you, Alex. This is Magda Sanchez. I think women typically go unmentioned. So I'm really glad, you know, that Thank you, Todd, for including women in this call and for giving us a voice. But I think it's important that we tell our own stories. We know that the living in the U.S., our mainstream media will not do it for us. So for me personally, one of my heroes is Dolores Huerta. I'm, my father was an actual migrant worker, picked cotton his entire life. Well, until he went to school. And he was the first one to go to school. But I love Dolores Huerta because she fought with Cesar Chavez and continues to fight to this day. She is 89. She's going to be 90 on April 10th. And what I love about this is that I know how hard it was for her, you know, to work side by side with other Mexican men who barely let her get a word in edgewise. I mean, I've seen it in film. I've seen her in person multiple times. I had the opportunity to see her film with her and with local activists a couple years ago um, at an organization, and I loved it. And she did say how difficult it was for women, and she talked about how much of her personal, how much she sacrificed personally with her children. She didn't get to see, you know, her children grow up the way she would have liked and had to co-parent with multiple people in the community. So I think it's important that we tell our own stories. And then secondly, how do we connect all of these people in different countries? I think that's the unique opportunity we have in this time that technology has enabled us to connect. And I think there's more work to be done. So maybe Alex, that could be a project of yours, but it needs to be done because I think there's a lot that we can learn from sharing best practices, sharing lessons, and really making sure that we give Indigenous communities and, and women in particular who do do a lot of the work that voice and a forum to kind of uh, progress together. I think that one of the things I mean, actually, a lot of the things that Fernando said right at the beginning were very important, I think also very interesting. But I think, you know, this idea of like, as people try to, or individuals try to rise up or raise up to take responsibility or to work as a mobilizer or an organizer in the community, that there is always this default in terms of of tearing down. It's interesting because, you know, as we talk about heroes, and I mean, I... I know that at some level it's cliche to say that, you know, we're surrounded by heroes, that we're all heroes, you know, that type of thing. But, I mean, we are surrounded by heroes, by people who very quietly throughout their lives, you know, just put in the work every day. And I think, you know, really push forward certain agendas. They're usually very specific agendas and they're usually very localized agendas, right, in the, in the communities or the neighborhoods that they're from. But this whole idea of tearing down, I think, is, is also fascinating, too. It's one of those things that we uh, seem to engage in rather easily. 
I think it is a, a condition of colonization, of uh, self-hatred. But I'm just also wondering, too, like in terms of sheroes and heroes, how do we begin to deal with this self-hatred to stop what my dad would have called the weedy-weedy? I mean, what, what do you all think about that? I don't personally believe that we need to go to heroes or try to find heroes in order to tell the history of uh, our community, of Chicanismo, Chicano movement, of Mexican American history in general. One of the things I said, uh, you mentioned Chicano Manifesto, one of the things that I observed in, uh, in that book was that a lot of our history is a group history. For example, when you think about farm workers, until recently, until you know the 60s and 70s, there wasn't much attention paid to, uh, to farm workers being largely uh, Mexican American or Latinos. But prior to that, that, the whole group of farm workers, you know, you talk about the Brasteros, the people that came over during World War II and World War I to harvest the fields, that was a, a heroic group. Uh, the same thing with the railroad workers, people that, uh, you know, helped build the railroads. The whole diaspora of, uh, of Mexicanos you know, took place because of people that were on the railroads, building the railroads, farm workers that went out into the migrant, uh, migrant uh, uh, areas and settled out. In fact, I'll tell you, one of my, my, one of my heroes, my grandmother, she sent, or she saw rather, five of her children, her boys, go into World War II. One after the other, well, a couple of them have already been in the service, but one after the other, as soon as they got of age, 18, boom, they went right into the service. And she, you know, she hung in there for like five or six years, so they all came back, you know, alive, thank God. Um, so what I'm getting at, I guess, is we have to define uh, what a hero is, and then how we can use that what I, I guess you'd call it a, a recognition to then build upon that, uh, for example, and build that into curriculums about Chicano history. It's not just looking for individuals, but whole groups of people who did certain things. Um, anyway, that's, that's my thought. No, I, I think that's a great point that uh, Trofe makes because even if we see it right now with this whole, you know, um, quarantine going on right now, you know, and the essential workers. Who is the, the essential workers, right? And we see some of those. And, I, you know, yes, we have to give credit to, you know, our doctors and nurses and things like that. But that, to me, there's one very important group that's being left out of this whole essential workers at the hospitals and is the janitors, those cleaners, those, those ladies, you know, those people that, those guys that are in there cleaning up after all this is going on, you know? Yep. And, and again, they're invisible. You know, and I, I think that kind of, to me, again, going from a classroom teacher, it ties into what you were saying, uh, Todd. Uh, I think it's a lack of self-confidence we have. And I see it in my students, you know. And yes, you know, for some reason, you know, we've been, we're used to that negativity or, you know, tearing each other down where we, we lack that confidence even at that very early age. And we're looking too much for those heroes outside of who we are. And Whenever you ask the students, you know, tell me about who you look up to, you know, it's always mom, my mom, my pops, as brother was saying, my grandmother, right? And we need to continue to build on that and, uh, and really realize all that they're given us so that we can really take that as a, 
as a building block. Yeah. I think the danger, and not danger, but in terms of danger to the movement, is getting too specific, you know, about uh, naming heroes. Like the concept in most indigenous, in, in many indigenous cultures, I should say, is not my abuela was this, this, and this, but the concept of the abuela is this, 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 and this. Yeah. We need to look more at symbols and adopt more symbols as a movement. I mean, just historically speaking, we don't want martyrs. You know what I mean? We, we, we don't name martyrs just yet. First, there has to be a conflict. And if you look at some of the most memorable moments in Chicano history, it was when we precipitated a conflict with the establishment. And then these things happened and you know, people rose to the occasion we haven't had our World War II as Chicanos. You know, World War II was, that was in Europe. You know I mean? That was somewhere else. Uh, but every movement needs a conflict, a setup of conflict between, you know, uh, oppressor and oppressed. And then there has to be people that rise to the occasion. And then those people are turned into symbols. You know, I think that it, the, the danger to the movement happens where we do get too specific and we do start trying to make heroes out of everybody around us and then that becomes kind of amorphous and not identifiable for a lot of people everybody has a grandma you know everybody everybody has members of their community that do you know things that require sacrifice but martyrs don't come from everyday sacrifice at least when it comes to movements it comes from you know a conflict set up uh, between opposing forces and then the movement you know, coming in and then there being martyrs happening on that battlefield, whether it's physical or ideological or whatever the case might be. But I think that's important to understand where we might be failing as a movement, just in terms of how we're going about identifying heroes, defining them, and how we're looking at it. Just, you know, we need to step back and look at it and say, well, do we want a successful movement, a Chicano movement, uh, in terms of historically and, and, and compared to other movements? Or do we want an authentic movement? And sometimes those two things are in conflict. You know, there has to be strategizing. There has to be a way of looking at it to where we want a successful Chicano movement. We want people to identify it. We want it to be international. We want it to bring about results which coincide with our objectives as, as indigenous people in the United States. We don't want it just to have a slogan or we don't want it just to make, you know, bumper stickers. We don't, yeah. we don't want it just Oh, I think he muted himself. Those are my, my thoughts on that. Sorry. The point of symbols is, is very important. And, and I absolutely agree with you, Fernando, that as a, as a community, that we lack those type of symbols. And I think that that is also, you know, very much a condition of 500 years of just total onslaught against, you know, who we are as uh, Indigenous people. I mean, to the point that where one of the major symbols of our community becomes this whole idea of the mestizo, right, or, the, or mestizaje, you know, and that, and it, it doesn't mean that people don't have European blood, right? I mean, that's because clearly we do. I mean, clearly, I mean, I do, right? My mom is white. But the idea that that is the concept that makes us who we are, that's an idea or a symbol that is founded in indigenous defeat. That's the reason that that exists. It's, it's, it's a product of rape, it's a product of, of conquest. And so like this whole idea of how we re begin to rebuild those symbols and really this is where the you know, heroes are coming from. I think, that's, I think that's right on, man. I do. Well, this is Reiner. I wanted to uh, piggyback a little bit on what uh, Mr. Lopez said, you know, because I represent uh, 
housekeepers and porters at Covenant Hospital. They're pretty, pretty low paid. You know, they got a raise because basically you can't fill the, uh, the positions because it was so poorly paid. And now they're, you know, because of the hazards they face, they are getting a premium for working during this crisis. But not only are there, there, you know, because of class issues, there's these porters and housekeepers. But the other day, my dad just mentioned out of the blue, he apparently watches a lot of TV and he was watching the farm report or listening to the farm report. And the farm report said basically that the farmers, because that's who they really listen to, and I mean farmers as in uh, the landowner or the uh, corporation and the representatives that basically control that part of it. But he was saying that they were basically crying or, you know, they were raising concerns because they have crops in the fields and, and they weren't able to get them out because, because of the timing. And, and that's why now you have farm workers as essential, you know, uh, essential personnel. And, you know, that's, that's somebody that you never hear mentioned, you know, it's, but at the same time in this whole supply chain issue, you know, if there's no, no, no one, you know, picking, the crops, then, then there's nothing to supply in the chain. So I just think that that's something that they're just kind of uh, ghosted a little bit by, by the dominant society, you know, because basically those are either poor people, they're immigrants of different nations, uh, many of them being, you know, indigenous from this continent. But, but it's just, that's just something that you, you, you can also notice that, that they're just, these are heroes. They're going out every day in already conditions where they're facing, you know, various, uh, substances and, and uh, dangers and you know this is just one more and yet there they are still working. I think that brings up an interesting point because I, I don't know what you all think. I feel like there's actually two points that are, are really being made in this conversation right now as we talk about sheroes and heroes and and that one of them is that yes on a, on a personal level there are people who do heroic actions. That doesn't necessarily translate into building or mobilizing a mass movement across society. It doesn't mean that their actions are heroic because they are, but I mean, it also is not the, the other kind of heroicism where we're talking about like, how do we build symbols within a movement that mobilize people, well, a certain ideology of things. Well, I think that though the thing is, and the reason we may not think those actions by those particular classes or groups uh, are that type of empowerment, you know, maybe that's because they've just been so devalued by the dominant culture, you know, because that's where, where those certain subaltern groups get uh, historically forced into. That's their professions, you know. So I think there's potential for, for actually uh, giving those folks a sense of worth and value, you know, be of above and beyond just a simple paycheck, you know, and then we'll see what... Uh, what gets produced out of that, you know, if you want to call it hoi polloi or whatever, there's a lot more of them than there are of other people. So I, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily uh, discount them. Good point. Like yeah, it, it's definitely not about discounting them. And there is a way to integrate that, that sacrifice and those, that's what apotheosis is all about, is, is, is the mundane transcendent. But we've got to do a better job as a community of lifting those people up. We've got to make symbols out of their efforts and their sacrifice and then lift them up as a symbol and translate that into actual practical, you know, measurements of, well, what position do migrant workers occupy in our own communities? 
You know, are they on the fringes? You know, are they undocumented on the fringes? And we treat them that way too, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, or do we lift them up and do we provide them from our own efforts and from our own pockets that quote unquote apotheosis? We lift them up and we provide them, you know, the better, the, the, the better properties, the better, you know, educations, the better opportunities, the, you know, that's where we have to make our symbols and we have to do a better job as a community of showing everybody else how we treat migrant workers. How, how are they our heroes? Not just paying it lip service, but well, actually making them into heroic figures in our communities. True. And, and, and I would I, say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I would say, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And, it, and it's not just about how do we transform them, but what can we learn from them? You know, it's particularly right now with farm workers, you know, so what can we learn? I mean, how do we learn about that growing food you know such an essential and maybe so simplistic activity right some people would consider primitive whatever you may want to say but it's an essential activity you know and how do we learn that and that in itself is is the power of it right it, it allows us another connection to our culture to our roots you know how do we take that so how do we redefine and transform that we um, make it a rite of passage True. We make we make going and picking fruits a rite of passage for for young Chicanos, and we make it we turn it into something that's you know like Peace Corps. You go and do six months of picking fruits, yeah, and that that becomes something where you get rewarded for. You get recognized by the community for it. I'm just saying this is just an idea. I'm not saying we go out and do it tomorrow, but I'm saying we make it a part. We, we fully integrate it into who we are, and then we lift it up as a symbol amongst ourselves. And it's like, yeah, he did his six-month service as a Chicano. Part of it was six months of picking fruit, standing there shoulder to shoulder with the migrant workers. And then it's like, well, it's not only undocumented immigrants that are picking fruit. It's young Chicanos born and raised in the United States. Excellent yeah. idea. I, I know they have a lot of uh, you know, white people going out there and picking the fruit and vegetables. So uh, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, want to just put a damper on this thing but i really think we should throw the word hero or sheroes out okay talking about our our, our people because uh, i i really think that we we need to define you know what it is that we we believe is a hero you have to go back to the word but in the terms of uh, the community and its needs the issues that have happened uh, over the years we've been you know we've been oppressed uh, people for at least 172 years since the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. So there's plenty of history that we have to put forward. Uh, people in Texas would say, well, the, you know, our history didn't start in 1836. It started way before that, in, certainly in Texas, but in the Southwest. It seems to me we have to find uh, ways of getting the information out about our, about our history and our culture and, you know, let the heroes come where they may and what have you, people want to define them like that. But I, I think we'd be better off talking about how do we get our, you know, our community aware? How do we, how do we build the, a kind of a hero ship for the whole, for, the whole, for all our people? Well, Don, that's, I think you're ahead of the movement, to be honest with you. And just looking in terms of the evolution of movements, heroes are, it's at a certain stage in movements that heroes are important. What you're talking about is definitely stages further on where we get where that becomes something that can be it becomes mundane once again like the mundane becomes deified and then the deified becomes mundane again but those, those are just steps and processes in the evolution of movements i think we're still 
you know, at the beginning, unfortunately, after so many hundreds of years, wherever you start counting from, or after decades, we're still very much nascent in terms of, uh, of being a movement. And, and at this stage, it may be more important to hang on to plastic representations, such as symbols and heroes, as detrimental as they are in the long run, initially they're required in order to coalesce. Well, I also think as human beings that we can't escape symbology, right? Like it is, it, it's, it's innate to us in the way that we think and in the way that we construct uh, reality and, and, and all of that. I also want to say just real quickly that I, I appreciate Reiner uh, correcting me very gently uh, just a second ago because I want to make it very clear that uh, what I was trying to say and that I did not say very well was that I believe uh, very much that this symbology or these ideas come from, come from the group, that it's not, it's not an individual effort, but it's an individual effort within the collective or the group. I just wanted to say that because I thought about what Reiner said and I realized how what I said sounded and that's not what I meant. <laughs> Thanks, Todd. I want to get back to this point you mentioned earlier of self-hatred and it's something that is so deeply ingrained in how we are raised. Um, you know, where are we as a people, we have suffered many emotional traumas and I think it's important that we need to start with accepting each other no matter what skin color we have, no matter the um, educational differences, no matter the social class, I think it starts with truly accepting and beginning to love and accept who we are. That's the only way that we can accept others. And um, I've noticed that if you look throughout history and look at the different social castes that were in Mexico, there were 17 different social castes. If you go to the National Anthropology Museum, and it's all based on blood quantum theory and you know how much blood you have of this or that and, it, and it's tragic and i think a lot of that our parents and our ancestors have unknowingly transmitted those social norms and and i think it, if we are going to move forward as a people if we're going to have a successful movement it's really critical to accept ourselves and and get through and help resolve these traumas so that we can truly take everybody's gifts and talents so that we can collectively move forward. You know, you're a great thought leader, just like Profe and, and many of you on the phone. I mean, every single human being has gifts and talents that they can bring to the table. And, and in order to do that, it starts with self-acceptance. Word. Word, word. 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 Love is definitely it. She was spot on with that. And, you know, going back to also, you know, I just, it occurred to me as Senora Magda was speaking that what's happening with the, the COVID-19, the, the phenomenon that's happening in France and other places where with social distancing and then families being isolated, the increase in domestic violence that's going on. And, and the idea that there's violence that's still, our historical violence is still manifesting itself in our own families. And that in and of itself is, is, an, is an impediment uh, to moving forward. And love is loving ourselves and, and, and love in general. Uh, is definitely a huge part of being able to move forward and, and as a community and, and kind of getting rid of that self-loathing and that hatred and then how that how it you know expresses itself into domestic violence and things like that. These are all impediments to any community moving forward and the solutions to that definitely are there. People people like uh, Senor Sosa and the work that they're doing in the community and, and, and all the community volunteers and social workers and everything. There's got to be a way to, to integrate that better into 
the, the Chicano movement and, and whatnot. But yeah, definitely love. I'm all that that was that was spot on. I really love that. I would say uh, that in terms of defining the Chicano movement, one thing I, I, I believe very strongly that it's still very much alive. That it would be extremely important, I think, and this is one of the things we're looking at as as part of the Mexicanos 2070 effort, and that is um, begin to gather all the things that are going on in, in the country by Mexicanos, uh, Mexican Americans, to uh, organize their communities, to serve the communities, uh, to be you know heroes, if you like, because I think that's how how we we begin to build a self-esteem, a knowledge of ourselves, an awareness of what we're doing, and then we we can really begin to you know, pull that into a, a plan that that's, you know, looks forward for the next 50 years, uh, not just uh, looking back. So, yeah, that's my thing. So. Yeah. I mean, one of the big projects that we're launching on to or we're figuring out right now is to start a uh, nationwide uh, series of interviews where we're looking uh, specifically at people in different communities who are doing the kind of work that, that we're really talking about. We hope to get that up running. One thing I want to add, so Profe, I love what you just said about, you know, developing our self-esteem and that's really based on hearing some of these great stories of just everyday people. And that something really um, touched my heart, and Alex, you'll appreciate this, is John Leguizamo, in one of his stand-up comedies, he said as a child, he really struggled growing up in Brooklyn because he saw no, there were no role models in society that he knew of that had done anything positive. And he said it would have meant the world, it would have meant the world to him to see people who looked like him, who had names like him doing great things. And I think that's critical. Like we, we have to see it to be it. And when you have no heroes of your own, the only heroes or people that we can admire are playing sports or, or watching movie stars. And that's all great, but there's more. There are more people in society that we can be proud of and emulate. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think earlier you said that we need to tell our own story. And I definitely think that we need to speak these people's names, our leaders, whoever we deem are our, as our leaders, we need to voice their names. We need to speak them into existence. They have to become part of our narrative, right? Like Todd, I know we've talked about proxy narrative in the past. And that's so important. I mean, I work with college students on an everyday basis. And Francisco, like you were saying, when we talked about like, okay, so who are women that you admire? You know, I hear Beyonce, JLo, and Shakira, and it drives me nuts. And so I want to get beyond that celebrity that glossed over and who are those real people who are working within the communities to make it every day better, right? Here in New York, I mean, you know, the essential workers here, they're all black and brown. Mm -hmm. and if you're looking at the levels of infection, and if you're looking at the levels of death, the Latino community as a whole it has leading numbers across the board, right? You're right. And here in New York, our nurses are women of color. They're Filipinas, they're like Chicanas, they're Caribbean women, right? Those are our nurses here. And so I think we need to, really talk about, you know, we're not disposable, right? We're here and we need to put, dig in and really talk about who we are and what we're doing. That's all we have for now. We want to thank everyone for listening to our discussion on the reality dysfunction. 
In the meantime, stay safe, stay home, and remember this can't last forever. And if you're curious to hear more or want to share your thoughts, let us know in our comments or check us out on the Twitter links included in the episode description. Hailing from the East Coast and doing my part to flatten the curve. Continue to repeat those names that ground us and give us roots to higher and deeper into the essence of our gente. Each mention and remembrance is a seed that blossoms into tomorrow's hero. Peace. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the Rasa, Rasa, Rasa.